If you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, let's turn together to Philippians chapter 3. If you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, there's one there provided for you in the pew. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, this morning we're going to be looking at three verses, verses 9 through 11. Again, Philippians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. If you found your way there, I invite you to stand with me for the honor and the reading of God's Word. I'm going to go back and start at verse 7, just to carry the context of what we studied last week uh, into our verses this morning. So Philippians chapter 3, we'll start with verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You can be seated this morning. Last week we looked at the idea of balancing the books. Paul considered his life, and he looked at all that he had done before he became a Christian, all the work and the effort and the trial and the tribulation that he had put into being a quote-unquote good person, of being a Pharisee above Pharisees. And you remember he is here confronting uh, the Judaizers inside of the church who were trying to come in and to mislead the people. They're trying to come in and teach them, and in order to be a Christian, you not only had to follow Christ, but you also had to be a Jew. You had to follow those uh, judicial laws, those laws of not only uh, God in the Old Testament, but also all the laws of the Pharisees, uh, that you had to follow through in the rite of circumcision. And so Paul is pointing out, he said, if there's anyone who had the ability to glory in fleshly endeavors, he said, it would have been me. He said, it would have been me because I had kept all of those things as perfectly as any human being could do so. But he weighed his life in the balance and counted all of that effort, all of those things as loss when it came to the surpassing knowledge of knowing who Jesus was. The surpassing knowledge of being in a covenant relationship with Christ Jesus. He had cast all those things aside and counted them not just as discarded, but counted them as refuse, as rubbish, as dung, as some translations put it. In order, he says at the end of verse 8, that I may gain Christ, that he would be in Christ, that he would have that right relationship with him. And so we pick up now in verse 9 this morning. And this morning, I want to talk to you about pointless effort and privileged endowment. Pointless effort and privileged endowment. Look there at verse number nine. The first thing I want you to notice in this text that Paul had a location that he sought. He says that I may be found in him. Now we understand Paul was already a believer. He was already in Christ in the salvific form of the term, but Paul desired to have this greater and greater relationship with Christ. He wanted to understand even more deeply each and every day what it meant to be in union with Christ. We need to understand that as human beings, we are either in Christ or we are apart from Christ. There is no middle ground that people can walk on. And it's something that we need to ever more consider in the world in which we live because there are so many people that think that they can just find a middle ground there. 
They say, well, I don't want to follow after God, but I don't see myself as, as following after evil. They, they think that they are okay before God. But brothers and sisters, again, we need to understand there are only two options. You're either serving God, you're in Christ, or you're outside of Christ. And if you're outside of Christ, you're serving your father, the devil. Now, people don't like to hear that because they say, well, you know, I have this sweet little old lady that lives across the street from me, and she's so kind and generous. She's nice to all the kids in the neighborhood. You know, she gives money to the Red Cross. She volunteers down at the homeless shelter, but she's not a Christian. Well, she serves her father, the devil. No matter how much good, no matter how much effort she puts into there, Paul would say, he says, if we are not in Christ, we are apart from him. And Paul desires to know even more deeply this relationship of being in him. In fact, Paul uses this phrase of being in Christ over 75 times in his writings throughout the New Testament. Romans chapter 8, he says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for what for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, the question is often asked, who are you? You get stopped by a police officer, they want your identification. They want to find out who you are. They want to determine information about that person. But the question that we should better ask as Christians is not who are you, but whose are you? You can thank Wesley for that terminology. Paul wanted to be found in Christ. Paul wasn't so much concerned about who he was. He was concerned about whose he was. He was in Christ. He wanted his relationship with Jesus to be such as that it was impossible to tell where Jesus ended and Paul began. And we too should desire such a comprehensive and intimate relationship with our Messiah. We would desire to be united in perfect harmony with him and dependent only upon him. Paul would say in the book of Hebrews, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. To know who we are in Christ, to know that we are his, is something that brings such a great encouragement to our lives as believers. Paul is going to go on to expound upon that. But he understands that everything about who he is now and his person is because of this intimate relationship with Christ, that he is in Christ. One commentator said this, all that we are, we are because of our position. All that we have, we have because of our position. All that we know, we know because of our position. All that we gain, we gain because of our position, end quote. Everything that we are as a believer is wrapped up in our positioning in Christ Jesus. It's the one that grants us all the promises of life that come with Christ, forgiveness of sin, everlasting life, the joy of the Lord, the peace that passes understanding. All of this is granted to us because we are in Christ. It's given to us because we're a part of the family. In the Old Testament, we see this picture, I think, in Noah and the ark, the ark being a type or a shadow of Jesus Christ. We talked about this in our Sunday school class this morning. God was sending judgment upon the world, and God chose Noah and his family. Now, we could preach a whole message there on election and predestination and, and the pictures of that in the Old Testament, but God chose Noah and his family, and God built a provision for an escape of judgment for Noah and his family. And when the floodwaters began to rise, God put Noah and his family in the ark and closed the door and provided an escape from judgment through the ark. And just as we know that judgment is coming upon this world, God has provided Jesus Christ. And if we are in Jesus Christ, we have escaped the judgment that will come upon this world. When Paul became a Christian, he was in Christ salvifically. 
just as you and I are upon our conversion. But this understanding of who he was in Christ broadened his horizons of understanding of what it meant to be in Christ and everything that God had provided to him because of that relationship. Paul had this desire to know Christ, to be found in him. But secondly, I want you to notice that as Paul looked at his life, he also saw that he had a rejected righteousness. Look at the second part of verse 9. As Paul looked at what it meant to be found in him, he says, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. The psalmist tells us that they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is not one who does good, not even one. A righteousness, Paul says, that is procured or established and kept by vain self-effort is worthless. Paul had this. He had a righteousness that was built upon a strict observation of the law. It was a righteousness that was no doubt envied by all of those who knew Paul personally. Because as they looked on Paul's outward demonstration of his obedience, it seemed to be perfect. He was from the uh, circumcised on the eighth day, from the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, as to the law of Pharisee, he persecuted the church. He said, as to the righteousness that found in the law, he was blameless. No doubt he carried a high reputation among all the other Pharisees. It's like, if you want to be like somebody, be like Paul. He had done it all. But as he says there in verse 8, it was all worthless. No amount of family heritage, no amount of national pride, no amount of legalism or religiosity had the power to save. We must carefully understand what Paul is saying here. Just because your family was born Baptist and raised you Baptist and you're Baptist now does not grant you a righteousness with God. Just because you were born in America does not grant you a righteousness with God. Just because you know what the Bible says, you know the Ten Commandments, and you can quote them forward and backward, and just because you endeavor to keep them does not grant you a righteousness with God. Just because you come to church on a regular basis and read your Bible and pray does not grant you a righteousness with God if that is all that you have. Because all of those self-efforts, all of those things in establishing it, trying to do it on your own will not grant you righteousness with God. Listen to what Paul said. He said, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, talking about the people of, uh, of Israel. He says, it's for their salvation, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and is seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. The nation of Israel desired, they had a great zeal and a passion. The Pharisees had a great zeal and a passion for following after God and for following the, the Old Testament law and then the extra law that they had added on top of. They had this desire to be obedient, but they were doing it in their own strength. They were not trusting in God. They were not looking for his righteousness, but were endeavoring to have a righteousness of their own. And we see this so much in people around us people who are trying to pursue righteousness of their own strength and ability. Again, by all outward observation, Paul had earned and maintained a perfect righteousness. But under the holiness of God's gaze, it all fell apart. 
Isaiah tells us that all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Paul had recognized that everything that he thought was worthwhile, everything that he had committed his life to was worthless. It was to be discarded. It was to be thrown away in the rubbish heap of life. Albert Barnes in his commentary said, all men by nature seek salvation by the law. What Barnes means by this is that men will by nature set up some standard in which they endeavor to live by. They will create in their own mind a standard of what they consider to be righteous or good. Okay, you you don't tell the lies here. You don't cheat on your taxes. You don't cheat on your spouse. You're kind to your children. You do good at work. Whatever it may be, they set up some kind of standard in their life. And they say, okay, if I can achieve to this standard that I've created more for myself, they will achieve some type of salvation. They'll achieve some type of righteousness. Some people, it's honesty. Others, kindness. Sometimes it's love. But Barnes continues after that, and he says, if they comply with the requirements of these laws, they suppose that they will be safe. And it's only the grace of God showing them how defective their standard is or how far they can come from completing its demands that will ever bring them from this dangerous dependence, end quote. This had been Paul's life in a nutshell. He had created in his own mind a standard of righteousness, some based on the law of God, some based on Pharisee tradition, some based on his own personal observance of how he thought he should live his life. And he thought that by completing all of that, that he would obtain a righteousness that would please God. But you remember on that pivotal day in Paul's life on the road to Damascus, Paul was riding high. And I don't just mean sitting on his horse. He was riding high spiritually because he thought, here I am being obedient to God. Here I am accomplishing everything that God would want me to do. And God struck him down. Paul was confronted with the true holiness and demands of God. And Paul was struck with how futile even his best and most commendable efforts was. Can you imagine? I mean, imagine for a moment, you know, that you've given your entire life to something. This was not just a job for Paul. This was his entire life as being a, 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 recommend, a recognized Pharisee, as being one who was, was looked at above all others. Paul had given his entire life to this. And then in a moment, he recognized and realized that every bit of it had been in vain. Paul could easily identify with the prophet Isaiah, I believe. Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. Paul stood before the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus, and he recognized his inability. This, by the way, is why an a accurate gospel conversation starts here with the law of God and with the holiness of God. The book of Proverbs tells us in chapter 20, verse 6, that most men will proclaim their own goodness. Those of you who have been out on the streets with us before when we go out, recognize this fact. You stop any random person on the street, and nine times out of ten, if you ask them, are you a good person, they will say, oh, yes, I'm a good person. Why? Because they've done just what Barnes talked about a minute ago. They have created a standard of righteousness in their own mind. They're not like that guy across the street who cheats on his wife. They're not like that guy across town who sells drugs to little kids. They're not like that evil guy over in North Korea who kills his own countrymen. So in comparison to all of those people, we look pretty good. 
And every man will proclaim his own goodness, will build up his own righteousness. And in order for a person to see the beauty of Christ and to recognize the good news of the gospel, they must first be confronted with their sin and with their inability to save themselves. This is where Paul came. God confronted him with his holiness, and Paul recognized and realized there was nothing that he could do in and of himself to save himself. Paul would say in Romans chapter 3, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God gave the law for a good purpose. The purpose of the law was to show us sin. It was to show us and understand what sin was, but it cannot save us. Paul tells us in Galatians that it's a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. It helps us to understand the depravity of our condition and our desperate need of Jesus. And only a person who understands their sinfulness is able to see the glorious hope of Jesus. Titus tells us he saved us not on the basis of deeds we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Paul had rejected any hope of saving himself, any hope of self-righteousness, any hope of attaining in his own strength salvation. Instead, Paul says, I didn't have a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but I want you to notice next that Paul says that he had a received righteousness. Latter part of verse 9, he says, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. The only real righteousness is that one that comes from God through faith in Christ. Righteousness means a right standing with God and being accepted by him. When we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, our position changes. We're no longer outside of Christ. Now we are in Christ. We are accepted by God, being forgiven of our sins, not because of any of our efforts, but solely because of what Christ has already accomplished for us. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he made him, speaking of God and Jesus, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. True righteousness has its source in God. He is the author of it and bestows it to us through Jesus. Romans chapter 3, Paul would write, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Salvation is a gift from God. This righteousness is a gift from God. And through this gift of righteousness given to us through the act of justification, when we become a Christian, God has justified us. And really, the term that you'd hear a lot of people say is that now God sees us after we have been justified as just as if we had never sinned. God has forgiven us of all of our sins, past, present, and future, they have been paid for by the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And this righteousness is given to us on the basis of faith. John MacArthur defined faith in this way. 
He says, faith is the confident, continuous confession of total dependence on and trust in Jesus Christ for the necessary requirements to enter God's kingdom. It involves more than mere intellectual assent to the truth of the gospel. Saving faith includes trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and surrender to his lordship. Faith is not just believing what the Bible says about Jesus, because the scripture says that even the demons believe and they tremble. It's not just an intellectual understanding. It's, it's often been said that so many people will miss heaven by 12 inches, and it's the difference between a head knowledge and a heart knowledge of Christ. We must know who Jesus is. We must trust what the Scripture says, but we must have dependence on and trust in Him. We must believe that what He said is true, and we must relinquish any hope and trust in any of our own self-effort and rely on the work of Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. Jesus is our Savior, but He is also our Lord. We follow after Him in obedience. We follow after Him in seeking and desiring. And Paul's going to go on and cover more of this in the following verses. But faith is that trusting in Christ and that following after Him. God has saved us. This was a gift from God, not of our own strength. There is nothing that we can do to merit faith from God. We can't obtain it on our own. And this is what makes the gospel so great. I would say what makes the gospel so good, but that's a, really a contradiction of terms because gospel means good news. It's what makes the good news so good is that it's a free gift from God. You look at every other religious system in the world, and to begin with, they have no hope of being forgiven. They just ba balance it out on chance. But in every other religious system, you've got to do something. You've got to witness to a certain number of people. You've got to make a pilgrimage here or a pilgrimage there. You've got to say a certain number of prayers. You've got to be uh, obedient to a certain level. But in Christ, faith is given to us by God of his own free will. He grants it to us as his children. We don't have to obtain it. We don't have to earn it. When we repent of our sins and we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, God gives us righteousness through faith. Paul recognized and fully believed that to have this righteousness from God was far greater than anything else that he could have obtained in his life. He would write to the church at Ephesus, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed us in the beloved. The righteousness that comes from God is one that is perfect, completely perfect. Everything that Paul had attempted on his own was lacking in some way. But the righteousness that comes from God is completely and totally perfect and righteous. The hymn writer would say, O when he shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, He made him who knew no sin again to be sin on our behalf, that what? That we might become the righteousness of God. When we become a Christian, God grants to us Christ's righteousness. We need to understand this. This is not just a foreign righteousness or an alien righteousness that God pulls in from somewhere else. It is Christ's righteousness that God gives to us. We look at the life of Jesus Christ and we see his obedience to God, his perfect and his sinless life. 
the righteousness that was obtained because he was God in the flesh and he came and did what no other man could do. He lived in perfect obedience to God. Brothers and sisters, you and I are not perfectly obedient to God. We fail in so many ways each and every day. But when God looks at us through his son, Jesus Christ, he sees us as perfectly obedient before him because we have been clothed in Christ's righteousness. God looks at us and he sees us as he sees his own son. Paul says, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So now Paul, knowing that the righteousness that he had so long desired, because this is what Paul had been pursuing his entire life. He had been pursuing righteousness that would please God. He had done it in his own strength and self earlier, but now he knew what true righteousness was. And now that he had received that, now that he had not a righteousness from the law, but a righteousness which came in uh, through faith in Christ, a righteousness which came from God on the basis of faith, it led Paul to this point. And I want you to see there in verse 10 that now Paul had a relationship that he desired. He said that I may know him. So Paul takes this initial idea of positional place with Christ, of being found in him, he then takes it to its logical conclusion to know him. Now, we are some 30 years removed from Paul's conversion. A lot of time has passed in Paul's life. But Paul still had one overarching desire. Paul didn't want to just know about Jesus in the scholastic sense. Paul didn't just want to know about Jesus in an intellectual way, but he wanted to know him in a real and a personal way. Paul desires a full relationship with Christ his Lord. In light of knowing Christ, Paul says, nothing else matters. And I think it's encouraging, brothers and sisters, to see that this is, again, 30 years has passed. Paul has has lived his life. He's gone on missionary journeys. He's been in prison. He's been shipwrecked. He's endeavored to do everything that he can do to follow in obedience to Christ. And now, some three decades later, he is still passionate about serving the Lord Jesus Christ. May our love for Christ never grow cold. May our desire to follow and serve him never wane. May we find ourselves, as Paul did, waking up each and every day with this hunger and desire in our heart to know Christ more today than we did yesterday and to know him more tomorrow than we do today. When one comes to a place where they, as Paul did, when we live with an all-consuming desire for a real and a rich relationship and knowing Christ, everything that this world has to offer pales in comparison to the beauty and the thrill of knowing Him. We see this example in Paul's life. Nothing else mattered to Paul but his obedience and following after Jesus. Not even his own comfort mattered. Paul desired to know Jesus in a real way. This word know here means to know by experience or personal knowledge. Paul's not talking about a relationship or an understanding of Christ that was built on what somebody else had told him. But what he had experienced for himself, what he knew to be a personal relationship, it was not merely intellectual knowledge. In fact, the word know here means the most intimate type of knowledge that one person can have about another person. Paul says, I want to know him. 
I want to know everything there is to know about Jesus. I want to discover every single facet of understanding about what it means to follow God and to be obedient to Him. Consider a man who becomes an apprentice under a master. There's a trade that he wants to learn. So he finds someone who is recognized and and respected in that field, someone who's a master of that craft. And what does the apprentice do? Does the apprentice just show up every now and then, casually hang around, watch a thing or two, and then leave in the afternoon? No, a true apprentice comes in every moment that he can. He finds every available waking moment to get there to that workshop, to get there to that place so that he can study under the master. And he doesn't just listen. He watches. He he listens to what the teacher tells him, but then he also watches what he does. He watches the way that he picks up the tools and the way he holds it in his hand and the way that, if you're talking about a blacksmith, the way that he heats up the metal in the forge and then pulls it out at the right time when it's the right temperature and how he hits the, the, the hammer onto the metal and how he uses the anvil and the other tools to shape that metal. Everything this apprentice wants to know about how to perform this task. An apprentice is never satisfied with what he's already learned, but always desires to learn more. And this should be our Christian life, that we study God's Word, that we spend time in prayer, that we spend time in obedient service to Him, whatever God it is that God calls us to do, that each and every day we are learning more and more about Him, that we are sitting at the feet of the Master Teacher. This is a picture of the Christian life because we should live each day not satisfied with where we were in our knowledge and relationship with Christ yesterday, but a desire to learn more and more and more. And brothers and sisters, we will die with this same hunger. There will never come a point in our Christian life or there should never come a point in our Christian life where we feel that we are satisfied in Christ, where we feel that we have everything learned that we need to learn. But think about this moment, that we will spend our entire lives pursuing more and more, as Paul says, to be found in him, to know him in a real way. And then in that moment, we will live our entire lives up to our dying day, and then we will know it in full. We will know that perfect and right relationship with him. Daniel tells us that people who know their God will display strength and take action. This is Paul's desire. He desires to put everything in perspective of who Christ is in this relationship with him. Go back there to verse eight. Remember what he says? He says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says to know Christ is the greatest thing. To know Christ is the all-surpassing thing. To know Christ means that everything else is to be counted as loss. Paul says that through this, there are some things that happen. Through this relationship, the first thing that happens is that there is a power that is given to us as believers, and it's found there in the second part of verse 10. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. After Jesus died on that cross to accomplish the work of redeeming sinful man unto God, he was laid in a borrowed tomb. 
And three days later, he arose from the dead. And the power that raised Jesus from the dead, Paul says, is a power that is available to all of those who believe in Christ Jesus. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 1, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, which he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. There is a comfort and sustaining work that comes from understanding the resurrection to know that God has raised Jesus from the dead and to know that that power that was present in raising Christ from the dead is is present in our own lives. Knowing and believing in Christ's resurrection gives to us a power that cannot be surpassed. When we understand and believe in Christ's resurrection, we are understanding some things. His resurrection, number one, confirms that God accepted the sacrifice that Christ offered unto him. It proves the resurrection of our own lives because Christ is risen, so we too also will rise. It points to a future of hope in heaven. And Christ's resurrection destroys the power of death, hell, and the grave. The power of Christ living in us The power of his resurrection is what gives us the power we need to live daily and overcome sin and to live in a life that is holy as he requires. This power of the resurrection is what lives and enables in us to accomplish the work of sanctification, as Paul has already talked about. The work that we put in, but the work that God has enabled us to do through his power. Paul would say, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism unto death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin." Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer a master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Is the power of our sanctification. Paul looked at his own life and he saw that understanding and knowing that Jesus had been raised from the dead and believing in the fullness of that enabled him to live his life in obedience to Christ. But it also does something else because knowing the power of Christ's resurrection gives us a knowledge and hope that we ourselves will be raised and enables us to face trial and tribulation without fear. Because what can the world do to us? What, what can a sinful world do to a Christian? We would say, perhaps say, the greatest thing that they can do to us is take our life. Because they can lie about us, they can be mean to us, they can persecute us, they can beat us, they can slander us. The greatest thing that one human can do to another human is to take their life. But even there, the sinful world fails because if they kill us, we will just rise again in Christ. So the power of Christ's resurrection gives us a hope to face those seasons and those times. 
This promise and hope enables us to face the darkest of trials. Think of the disciples. Later on, the martyrs and their boldness as they went to the lions to be eaten, the gallows to be hung, and the flame to be burned. Why could these men and women, and sometimes even children, go to these places with such joy? How could they go singing and proclaiming the truth of Christ with an otherworldly happiness? I would encourage you to pick up, if you never have, Fox's Book of Martyrs and to read about the stories of these brave men and women who would go to the flames, and as they're flames, they're just singing. They're just glorifying God. They're, they're preaching and proclaiming the truth, and, and not only that, forgiving the people who are torturing them and killing them at the same time. How could they do this? Because they knew Christ and the power of His resurrection. Peter would say, blessed to be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But Paul not only celebrated in the power of Christ's resurrection, he, he longed for even more because he says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. But notice now the fellowship of his suffering. Now, Paul here was not saying that as Christians or that he partakes in the actual suffering that Christ endured on the cross on our behalf. But he is pointing to the trials and the tribulations and the sufferings that we endure in this life. Through those things, we are brought into a peculiar fellowship with Christ. Christ suffered in many ways and he died on our behalf. And we are in partnership with Christ in the midst of our suffering. And Paul desired this. It seems counterintuitive to the 21st century mind that Paul would desire to be a co-laborer and fellowship with Jesus Christ in the sufferings of the Christian life. But we have died with Christ and we have been raised with him. And if we have died with Christ and if we have been raised with him, we should not be surprised that we would also suffer like him. Remember what Paul was told at the very beginning of his ministry. When Ananias came and God was telling him what he would do, he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Now, what a job description, right? Go in, sit down with the boss, looking for this new job. It's like, we're going to you know, pay you a certain salary. You'll get life insurance and benefits, but it's also, you're also going to suffer quite a bit. It's going to be painful. It's going to be difficult. People are going to lie about you. They're going to mistreat you. They're going to throw you in prison. They're going to beat you. You might even dr almost drown a couple of times. Paul knew from the very beginning what his life was going to look like, but he rejoiced in the fact that he was a fellow sufferer alongside of Christ. One commentator said this, many are willing to reign with Christ, but they would not be willing to suffer with him. Many are willing to wear a crown of glory like him, but not the crown of thorns. Many would be willing to put on the robes of splendor, which will be worn in heaven, but not the scarlet robe of contempt and mockery. They would desire to share in the glories and triumphs of redemption, but not in its poverty, contempt, and persecutions. As Christians, we need to understand that the Christian life is not a cakewalk. It's not a tiptoe through the tulips. 
It's not a day in the rose garden. The Christian life is difficult and challenging, but we must also understand that to suffer for Christ is a blessing and a privilege, and that through our suffering, we are made more like him. Don't believe me? Listen to what the scripture says, 1 Peter chapter 4. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests on you. Colossians chapter one, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is in the church in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Second Corinthians chapter one, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so our comfort is abundant through Christ. We must ask ourselves this morning this provoking question. Are we willing to follow Christ only when things are convenient for us? Are we willing to follow Christ only when things are easy or only when things go our way, only when others speak well of us and are agreeable with our set path and pursuits? Remember the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6. Blessed are you, when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way the fathers used to treat the prophets. I want to, I want to read that again. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. Jesus is saying when, when people lie about you, when they ostracize you, when they persecute you and insult you, He says, jump up and down and shout for joy. Sing a song and celebrate. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not typically my first response. But it should be. Why? Because in Christ, we realize that what does it matter what anybody else says about us? What did David say? He says, Lord, you know my heart. You know who I am before you. But now Jesus continues. He says, Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now listen to this. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. We need to understand that in our Christian life, if everyone is always speaking good about us, then we're probably not saying and doing the things that we need to be doing as Christians. But brothers and sisters, there is great hope here. Paul is not talking about the fellowship of his sufferings in a negative connotation. He's talking about this in a joyful perspective. Because he would tell Timothy, it's a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. God has given us this blessed promise that to suffer with him, is to know him in a greater way. To suffer in him is to identify with him. To suffer with him is to be filled with great joy and satisfaction in him. Paul says that I may know the sufferings of Christ being conformed to his death. Being conformed to his death points to the death of sin in the life of the believer. And ultimately, through all of these things, Paul was looking for one final thing, and you'll find it there in verse 11. He's looking for the reward. He says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, 
it seems that, that Paul may here is, is speaking with some type of uncertainty. He says that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. But Paul here is not speaking from uncertainty. Rather, he's expressing his humility because Paul recognized himself as the chief of sinners. Paul recognized himself as the lowest of low. And he's saying that if by any way possible, that even me, somebody like me, he says, I'm following in all these things that by any way possible, I might attain to this. He's, he's humbling himself. It's interesting that the word that Paul uses here for resurrection means an out-resurrection from among the corpses. And it's here that Paul points to that thing and to the end which every believer looks and longs for. The culmination of God's work in us. The finality of our salvation. We have been justified. We are being sanctified. And then one day, praise God, we will be glorified in Him. But how would it happen? Paul doesn't know. He's just looking forward to it. He doesn't know if it's going to happen through martyrdom. At this point in time, Paul doesn't know if he's going to be taken out and killed for his faith. He would eventually be, be killed that way. We die of natural causes. Would he live many more years or just a few days? But no matter when or how, this would happen. Death held no fear over Paul because to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, Paul longed for that day when all believers, himself included, would finally know what it meant to feel, to see the power of Christ's resurrection in its fullness. And the same is true for us. Death has no grip on us because we've been given the promise of the resurrection from the dead. To be raised in Christ was something that Paul saw at full well of necessity to put every effort into seeing unto completion. Paul's life was not just one of living the Christian life in the moment, but of living the Christian life with this long perspective of saying, I know where I'm going. I know to those things which I hope to obtain. And so God, would you give me the strength, the power, and the ability to make it all the way to the end? He who endures to the end shall be saved. And this was Paul's great desire. Let us pray together. This morning, Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would challenge the hearts of every person here. Lord, may we look and evaluate our life. Lord, I would not assume that every person here this morning is where they need to be in you. But we pray, Father, that, Lord, you would show those who are outside of you. Lord, if there's one here this morning who is not in you, as Paul talked about being in you, that you would reveal to them this morning, Father, the enormity of their sin, that you would reveal to them the holiness of who you are, and Lord, that in light of that, they would confess their sin, trusting in Christ alone for their salvation, to receive this righteousness that comes from you through faith. We pray, Father, that we would live our Christian lives as Paul laid out here, to know you more each and every day, to understand the power that indwells in our life, to know the fellowship 
of what it means to walk with you and to endure the things that this world will bring against us. But Father, to do all these things with such great joy because we know the reward that awaits us in the end and the power of your resurrection and eternal life with you. Lord, I pray for those believers who are here, Lord, that we would be encouraged by this text this morning. Lord, help us to live the way that you have called us to live. Help us to stand firm in the world, in a world that is ever increasingly hostile to your truth. Help us to be bold in the things that we say and the things that we do. Lord, we pray this week as we go out that you would give us opportunity to share the gospel with someone. Bring someone across our path at work, at school, in our family, out in the community that needs to know you. And Father, may we share with them the good news of who Christ is.